the second place is a failure for her. Giving power to those voices that say, you need to do this climb or lead or it's not valuable or it doesn't count, as I've heard so much. Men have uh, much higher levels of competitiveness. And uh, this is definitely driven by a lot of social pressure. Welcome to another episode of the That's Not Real Climbing podcast. I'm your host, Jenny, and I'm excited to introduce my guest for today, Allegra McGuire. Allegra is a mental climbing coach who has experienced coaching all types of climbers from beginners to World Cup youth athletes. In this episode, we'll talk about what it was like coaching one of her athletes at the Youth World Champs, how to deal with fear of falling, competing in Swedish League Championships after only two years of climbing, and the competitive mindset difference between males and females. Hope you enjoy this episode with Allegra. I'm glad we finally got a chance to schedule this. It's been a long time. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's been, uh, I've been so busy. I've done so many things in the meantime. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, there's a lot to catch up on. Um, Uh But yeah, so far, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I've uh, just started uh, basically becoming a junior trainer for climbing as well. So Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff going on. uh, Yeah. Do you feel like you're finally settled in after Korea and everything? Oh, yes, definitely. I took a while because after I came back from Korea, I got sick as well. Like everyone else. And so I took a bit. And how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, Definitely haven't been doing as much traveling as you lately, but um, maybe soon. Um, Did you do any climbing yourself while you were in South Korea? Just some uh, climbing in and one indoor gym and nothing much more. Too too much. Yeah. How was it there? Very cool, actually. In the climbing arena or in general? Um, Both, yeah. Because from the climbing perspective, there's been a lot of talking going on. So um, about leveling up the level of root setters in, uh, in different gyms. Because the level of root setting was very, very high in basically every old ranging in, in souls and uh, I mean I had a lot of discussions with the Italian team because <clears throat> I might be starting to work with them next year Ooh. and uh, for the rest of South Korea was very similar to Japan I have to say so I wasn't too culture shocked and uh, I, I know Japan very well I used to live there for a while so it it was summer and Asia in summer, humid and hot. Right. So it was tough. <laughs> yeah. That's super cool place. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've never been, but I really want to go. How's the, the podcast going? I saw that on Instagram you're gathering followers. Yeah, it's been okay. <laughs> it's been okay. It's a lot of work. Um, yeah, just like editing and distribution and stuff like that. Um or I guess, yeah, getting the advertisement out there is always difficult, but it's been a whole process. But yeah, I feel like a lot has changed since the first time we tried to film this. Okay, like? Um, well, I'm slightly less scared every time I do an interview. Um, and I'm like a little bit more in the flow of like the editing process. 
Um, but there's still a lot I want to change once I have the For time. Sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, experience changes a lot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm sure you're familiar with that with like your YouTube channel. Definitely. And um, I heard uh, some uh, of the podcasts that you've done, and uh, it's very cool stuff. I have to say, like, and I don't usually listen to podcasts. Oh, yes. well. Thank you for making the exception. Yeah, I'm really grateful for like the guests I've had on in the past. Um, they've all been really interesting. So hoping to mm -hmm. get more interesting people on in the future. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, you mentioned that you might be doing stuff with the Italian team in the future. Is that something you're allowed to talk about now? No, I don't think I am. That's fine. But I can say that I got in contact with other federations, and uh, I know that the Italian Federation is one of those that is investing in mental coaching and uh, has their own psychologist that is taking care of the, uh, of the athletes. For example, this is something I can share. Also because, I, I mean, I've been talking with other athletes via Instagram from the Italian team, and, and I know that they have. It's, it's a lot of difference depending on the federation, really. It, there's a lot of disparity when it comes to wealth, and this has a big impact on the team as a whole. Yeah, do you know like which like which federations have dedicated climbing psychologists, if any? Uh, as I said, Italy has, uh, but uh, Spain doesn't. So I'm employed by the single families. I know that Team Australia doesn't, because I know that there have been some um, teams actually crowdfunding for for different. Kind of stuff. So let's say the sports psychologist is one of the last things that they employ. They have uh, other priorities, rightfully. And uh, I, I do understand. I, it, I still see it more like as a luxury. Like the, that type of treatment that very top level athletes can get unless they are, you know, asking for themselves. And it's... Um, you know, in that optic of getting the super high level, getting everything as top quality, top, yeah, as possible, which is usually not how federations work in climbing. A lot of times they just try to go with what they have. And uh, asking for more funds is not always easy and so on. Yeah, definitely. A lot of federations are struggling with having the amount of money that they need to... Um, like pay everyone that the athletes want and like paying for their athletes to go to competitions. Italy has this, uh, the, the organization of getting them into the police. So this is how athletes can get a, a living, basically. But not all of them get uh, inside the police. They need to like achieve some, uh, some big trophies and stuff. So it's, it's not like all, the whole team is in the police. So for example, Laura Rogora and uh, Stefano Gisolfi are. Ludovico Fossali, I believe so too, what I need to check. Yeah, that's good for them. I'm sure having like a regular income makes a huge difference, um, just like psychologically as well, not having to worry yes. about that. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff a lot that it has to be discovered and uh, that I hopefully will know more about. I know about very small areas so far and mm -hmm. um but definitely the competition setting is one of my favorite mm -hmm. yeah um and i think we'll get back to that in a little bit but um first of all let's figure out how you kind of got here to begin with so yeah. 
Um, can you tell us a bit about your background and um, how it relates to like climbing and psychology? Yes. So I am a psychologist. I studied applied experimental psychological sciences. And um, after that, I moved to Sweden to study decision-making, human decision-making, uh, because that was my main interest. But at the same time, as soon as I moved, I discovered there was a climbing gym really close by my apartment. And I started uh, climbing and I got deep into it very, very fast. So I think less than a month after I started climbing four to five times a week. Oh, that's and, a lot. Uh, yes. <laughs> when I get obsessed, the obsessions go deep, I have to say. And um, so I started climbing and my climbing gym is a club. So it's not a commercial gym. It's very, very cheap. Let's say around $10 a month. It's super cheap, but also means that we don't have professional root setters. And everyone is allowed to root set during root setting weekends, which are approximately four times a week. Yeah, four times a year, sorry. And uh, so I got more and more into the community and uh, people were teaching me how to climb. We didn't have any course specifically for adults. We have for juniors, for kids, but not for adults. So you really learn with the community and you learn to bond with the, with the club itself. So within six months from starting climbing, I started root setting. And then I got into the organization. So uh, next, the following year I was already in the board. So in making the decisions on how to improve the club, how to make it more safe, how to make it more fun. So I worked on for example, adding a slab wall because we didn't have any. And uh, it's very small. It's very, very small, but it allows a lot of interaction. And going forward, I started uh, getting more and more involved with the club and uh, getting to know more and more people and uh, noticing that psychology is something that was quite missing in the climbing community and in the climbing scene, despite being very prevalent. So a lot of people were talking about fear of falling when no, no systematic ways of talking about fear of falling. And especially when it goes outside of the fear of falling, everything is just regarded as mental game. And when you regard so such complex processes with just one name, you can go into the details of it. You can really study, you can really understand how to change it actively unless going by trial and error and still with very little details. So I decided to start one year after starting climbing and decided to start my YouTube channel in which I talk about sports psychology applied to climbing. And uh, then I, uh, I got a lot of people contacting me for starting to make coaching. And then I, I, set, up my, I set up my own um, mental coaching service with other two amazing mental coaches. And so now I am officially owner, co-founder of Climbing Flow, where I, yeah, where I just uh, do a lot of different types of coaching from the average climber, a lot of fear falling, fear judgment, fear, a lot of fears I have to say, and uh, but also I started working with athletes because um, I got in contact with some families 
most of them from Spain, and uh, uh, the word spread. So I started working with more and more elite athletes, and um, then I got to the the privilege, I have to say, to become Jela Masia Martin mental coach because she's definitely the flagship of my athlete. It it's impossible to say anything different, and. Um, so the idea is to put the athlete in the best mint, uh, mindset possible for competition. So I've been following them and giving them uh, help and support. So for example, one of my athletes got injured. Uh, we ha- had to uh, help her follow her schedule for the rehab and like not to have completely mood swings and uh, to make her lose motivation for training despite she noticed that her strength was was definitely lower than before and she had an important competition that she really wanted to go to so a lot of different types of coaching even with uh, elite climbers but in most cases it's about managing pressure in uh, in high demand and high anxiety situation okay yeah um that's awesome we'll get into um probably the differences between like general coaching versus elite athlete competition coaching um a bit later on um, but first I wanted to just like talk a little bit about, uh, your YouTube channel. Cause that's how I found you. You do a lot of videos about the psychology behind different, um, pro climbers that people are familiar with. Um, what world cup climber do you find the most psychologically interesting? Oh, this is a big question. Like since we have so many different athletes and so many different mindsets I don't know if I can pinpoint one or another but if I have to think about didactively so if I want to think about one mindset that I would like more people to have and that will help a lot of people to um, improve their relationship with themselves and with climbing I would say Stefano Gisolfi and uh, I have done um, a video on Stefano Gisolfi uh, called uh, under the mindset analysis series, it's called self-compassion. Because whenever I listen to him talk, and I mean, uh, to a certain degree, I, I could also listen to him in Italian, since I'm Italian as well. So I could get a bit more information, still don't know him uh, directly in person, I'm working on. And uh, yeah, I'm getting into contact with uh, more and more professional climbers. So I'll be doing more of these mindset analysis videos by asking them directly and trying to figure out, yes, instead of trying to extrapolate from information elsewhere. But Stefano has this very self-compassion attitude towards himself, towards mistakes, towards improving, that really is fueling his desire for improvement, for climbing, from enjoying the the routes that he's been climbing indoors or outdoors. And uh, it's something that really can be trained, can be learned, and a lot of people um, misunderstand because of the self-development industry, the role of um, self-compassion compared to self-discipline. So they, a lot of people say, see self-compassion as a way of being self-indulgent with oneself and use a lot of like very tough self-talk to try to go through difficult times and uh, this in the long run it's detrimental for several reasons first of all like unless 
there are some specific cases in which the person is uh, has been developing in a very tough environment that has been succeeding in surviving and not quitting then maybe self-discipline is could still work without too many detrimental effects but we know from the research that uh, people that are more self-compassionate are able to keep in- internal mo- intrinsic motivation for a longer period of time they can get through setbacks more easily and they you know, have a higher level of quality of their life and of enjoyment of their activity as well. So we both know from like a research point of view, but we also know from psychotherapy. So we know that from the clinical area, self-compassion is a very important aspect to improve quality of life and how you basically see yourself in when you are in the process. So when you put together these two types of evidence, you can learn to see how self-compassion can be used in specific settings such as like managing mistakes in in sport not that there is no research in sport there it is a lot of research in self-compassion in sport as well but all the information basically is going towards that direction yeah i think um for me personally i probably struggle with that quite a bit um yeah just like when you were talking about it it sounded a lot like me to have not much self-compassion but I guess the way I justified it was like if if I tell myself that I suck then I'll want to work harder to like do better and if I tell myself that I'm doing well then I'll get kind of complacent and just be like well I'm already doing well so there's not really a need to like try harder Uh um so I guess in a way that can be kind of bad but that's just what I'm thinking so the thing is that even when you tell yourself if you are the type of person tell yourself that you suck and you still get motivated then there is a part of yourself that is aware of the fact that for example you're able to improve and learn if you want to and uh, the the problem really is when you get the lows of motivation so one thing is saying like I uh, like I suck at this move Another thing is saying, I suck. So refer to yourself. Maybe yourself as a climber, yourself as a person, you know, has different kinds of uh, um, implications, definitely. And um, there is sometimes this narrative that if you're satisfied with what you have, you might not want to keep going further. Um, (laughs) You know, you don't have as much... Uh, desire to keep on going but if uh, we look at the different types of motivation that people have uh, usually the it's not the fear of uh, sucking for example that drives a lot of people is the sense of accomplishment being uh, doing better and uh, being capable of what you're doing and so on and then we know for for sure from the research in strength training that the more you Uh, get experienced in one type of activity the harder it will be to get to a certain level and to improve you know we call it the plateau but there it's much more complex than this but it is in the long scale how it looks like and how it feels like for a lot of people so it's a lot about the amount of effort they have to put into it to reach the next marginal gain so the the effort that you need to put into it 
becomes greater and greater. And then if the, the, the desire, the, the motivation that you want to put into it is driven by fear, it's much easier to give up because you have already achieved a lot, let's say. You might have so some bases. Maybe you say, okay, I suck at comp style moves, but I'm super, super strong outdoors. And I can keep on working on that, maintaining that, seeing where is my limit and not wanting to invest in the things that uh, are threatening you, let's say. Despite the types of motivation that are uh, going towards trying to achieve your goals. So if you're not afraid of sucking, you have more motivation to uh, keep on trying to go for improving your weaknesses of something that doesn't feel as, let's say, feasible or as rewarding right away. So those people are more prone to um, persevering even when the it's a little stake comes later in time compared to the reward at the moment. Because the reward at the moment is what is actually trying to overcome the fear of sucking in that specific thing. Well, thanks for helping me with that. Um, yeah, let's move on to the Youth World Championships, which you were just at in Korea that we were talking about. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about first, like, what group of um, athletes are you currently coaching? So I'm currently coaching one athlete that is 12. And we started working together when she was 11. So she's still not in the IFSC circuit. And then I have some athletes that are 15. They all come from the same group. And the one that I've been going to the world championships with is Jayla Masi Martin, uh, who is a climber that you will hear a lot more in the future. And um, and I'm, I'm saying this not just because she is my athlete, and of course she is special in my eyes, but she is outstanding. Uh, she is the uh, European champion and won the championships in both lead and boulder. So not not only the championships, but the overall cup, let's say. Oh, awesome. in both cases. And uh, in um, also in the world championships, she got two medals in in the two disciplines that she competed in. So she is definitely outstanding. She was also the only one from Europe on the podium. Oh wow! So yes. <laughs> Um, Japan went very, very hard at the Youth World Championships. And it might be also because they're more familiar with the with the weather conditions because every European got completely smashed by the European the, the weather conditions because it was incredibly, incredibly humid and hot. And uh, the facilities were were, I would say, pretty bad. So, uh, for example, when they had to warm up for boulders, the bouldering area was extremely small. The route setting was very, very easy. There was a spray wall that was made only by jugs. What? So, wow. <laughs> there were no hangboard. There were no, it was very, very weird. They all got a bit throw off by, by this. And uh, mentally, it was very hard, I would say, for everyone. Because they didn't have a lot to to work on, everyone was trying to create boulders with, uh, you know, boulders that were not set for that intention, and the only um, holes that were hard enough were always the same. So everyone was almost like in line or trying to push each other out of the walls to to warm up 
that's it stressful. Was, uh, it was very, very stressful. And uh, you could feel it in the air, really, especially the first day when people went around the area and discovered that there was like one small campus board where it was like not the standard campus board and it wasn't vertical. And uh, the the run was pretty pretty big too. There was no space to move the feet underneath. It was very weird. So very, very difficult conditions, I have to say. And then when they were climbing outdoors, because of the the comp settings were outdoors, the the sun was hitting. Sometimes it was raining a bit because the high level of humidity does it. And everyone was slipping all the time. And uh, probably the Japanese team was more used to this compared to uh, other countries. Uh, Korea also did very well. Hometown yes. advantage. So. Yes. But the um, the Japanese team was a most striking one. You could see results in settings which you would never guess. For example, speed climbing. And uh, seeing the goal in speed climbing by a, a female Japanese girl, it, it did it, athlete. It did. It was pretty striking to me. So it it was definitely conditions that played the role, and then maybe. Um, definitely the Japanese team has an edge in training that still has to be discovered <laughs> right, what, yeah. what are their secrets but overall the the championships went really really well the the setting was uh, very interesting the the sometimes weird I have to say very hard to read boulders and and roots which in a certain sense wanted to uh, let's say push for decision making I would say retreating ability rather than strength and uh, and technique sometimes because a lot of for example the females final was a, a disaster for half participants basically half of the girls were crying when they finished the, the, the route was incredibly hard to read and uh, a lot of people got stuck many mistakes and uh, very difficult type of climbing, I have to say. And the boulder was pretty much the same, not as dramatic, I have to say. But you could see that the athletes were all struggling, trying to understand which was the best, the easiest beta. So flashes were less prevalent. Sometimes there were. There was a round in which Jayla did all the boulders flash. But, wow. it, but for example, not in final. This wasn't the for the finals. The the boulders were especially tricky to read. And so, how does uh, decision making kind of connect with it? Is it just as simple as like making a decision and sticking to it and committing? Or is there yeah. more to it? Definitely a lot more. And I have to say, well, I have a professional deformation in this terms. But I work a lot with cognitive biases in decision making. So the types of biases that impact our way of processing information or applying or sticking to decision, actually sticking to decision is one of the uh, the biases that we study so much. And um, for example, one is the sunk cost fallacy. So uh, if maybe some of the audience, someone from the audience not familiar sunk costs are the costs that have already occurred in a decision and they shouldn't uh, influence future decision 
So the decision should be an evaluation of pros and cons in uh, the different outcomes and depending on the probabilities of the outcomes and whether you invested um, resources, it doesn't even need to be money. It could be time, it could be energy, it could be training, it could be anything really, um, really shouldn't influence the future decision. And uh, this is also called the Concorde fallacy because the Concorde was a project for a super fast jet that was supposed to make, yes, traveling super fast across the world. And the a lot, I think there were actually two governments that funded this project with, I don't remember how much money, but a lot of money. And the problem was that as soon as the project started, they understood that it was going to fail. But this, since they invested this amount of money, they kept on investing. Let's see if there's something that we can do about it since we put so much money into it. And if they continued, then it failed eventually, as it was predicted. But this can be used for any aspect of our lives. It could be used for, for example, relationships. Maybe you invested a lot of time in, in one relationship and you don't want to get, get out of it. Or you invested your time in a university course that you don't really like, but you know you've done a couple of exams, you don't want to throw that effort away. When it comes to climbing, it can really go uh, from training. So, for example, with training, we have to say that we see the opposite. So people are not sticking to a specific type of training plan but sometimes it's uh, there is something like if it works don't change it kind of so you you've seen something that has been working for a very long time for example just climbing and uh, you can you keep on climbing uh, so like i mean this i've been improving so much with just climbing this should work for for the future as well and uh, well this is a kind of a different uh, bias, but you really can have it in in, in any type of um, investment that you have for your uh, both in in your like training and the competition setting. In sunk cost fallacy is usually not. You can see it, for example, in a boulder. So you do a move, you do a specific kind of beta, and you see improvement, and you see this could work. And you don't take the time to to try something else because you see that there is uh, something that is working, something that is improving, and you don't want to make these effort to waste. So you want to make the beta work, or well, there might be something easier that can can work. I've seen it in some comps. Fortunately, this is not something that Jayla showed in during the competition, but it's something that can happen. Uh, one bias that I see much more frequently than some cost bias is the opportunity cost neglect. And it's the basic of opportunity cost neglect is that all resources are finite. So in any decision, there is an opportunity cost, which is the cost of the option that is not chosen. So what does it mean? It means that with any choice you make, you're for going something else. And if you don't pay attention to the fact that you are basically giving up something else with this choice, you incur into opportunity cost neglect. And I've seen it many times. Uh, I've actually seen it sometimes in, in Jayla, so we, we worked on it as well. 
and um, it's uh, something that I'm actually working on as a PhD student. So um, I've worked on opportunity cost neglect a lot throughout different contexts, and now I'm applying it to climbing as well to lead climbing. But you can see this. Uh, this is a general example. Um, this is not the case of Jayla. But the, um, consider, for example, when you are um, bouldering and or lead climbing, and you have to do several sessions. So, for example, when it comes to lead climbing, uh, you have semifinals and finals are on the same day, which means that you will be doing a lot of effort. You will be losing a lot of skin, especially if you're doing bouldering. You or you're going to get pumped. And uh, if you have, if you can make a precise estimate of uh, how is your performance, especially compared to the other um, competitors, uh, you need to really make strategic decisions about whether your effort or what you're giving up with the next choice and next try and the yeah, the next the, the effort that you're going to put in the next round is going to be worth. So, for example, if uh, you see that there is a a boulder is specifically hard. You got the zone is the last boulder, and no, you can see from the from uh, the information that is going around from you know the crowd, you can get an idea whether you are in final or not. Especially if you're in the top position, and then it might be worth. Especially if, for example, it's a sloper move with mega jump where you can lose a lot of skin, you can open flat, then you know these kind of elements can impact a lot the final and so you might be willing to not push to the very last bit of effort and uh, allocate it to the finals but if you don't you're taking it away from times for the final uh, but what i notice is that a lot of time athletes are actually trying to do their actual best in semifinals as well and this has some impacts, for example, in their motivation. So if they yeah, end up first in semifinal, they feel more uh, confident that they can win in finals as well. But also from the data that I have collected, this is not the case. Oh, and really? I've got the data from World Cups and Championships. I don't remember how many years, but actually between the three podium position, there is no difference in the predicted outcome of who's going to win. So this is uh, something that I find really interesting that I talk about a lot with my athletes. So for example, Jayla had issues with her confidence when she's not first in, uh, in semifinals. So we worked a lot in trying to get her this confidence back and, uh, really go for her best in finals with the confidence that she can go there to win. Because this is what she wants. We know that she wants to go there and take first place. A second place is a failure for her. This is the kind of mentality that she has, and that is fine. It's something that we have to manage, but it's not a problem itself. And it's something that really allows her to, to do her best. So it's not something that is pulling her down. So, for example, self-sabotaging. She doesn't have this type of... Uh, behaviors. So for her, this is uh, the aim, her goal. But sometimes she would want to uh, do her best and try to be first even in semifinals when it's not necessary. And, um, we don't actually 
see this much of a problem because Jayla, we have to say, has a, a good edge on the other participants, so it doesn't really matter as much. But I've seen from um, uh, other professional climbers. So, for example, I remember there was an interview for Jessica Pils, the qualified second at the European Championships, I believe. And they asked her how she felt, and she said that she was disappointed because she couldn't give her best effort. And in my mind, when you qualify second for finals, it's like you should be like screaming out of joy that you didn't even have to put everything you had into that situation, and you get this extra edge compared to the the other participants because you you are more fresh, you are not as pumped, and uh, especially if it's like a foot slip. It's something like it's, uh, it doesn't impact your your skin or your pump as much. The case is right. Uh, but in her mind, this wasn't the case. Because that was an indication of, for example, lack of focus or uh, something that she wouldn't feel as confident for the finals as well. Sika feels Jesse is one of the most accomplished um, competition climbers as well. So we know that she can do very, very well in competitions. And it shouldn't be the result of semifinals, which is impacted by so many factors to um, influence or determine whether she feels confident for the finals or not. You know what I mean? And uh, But I don't see this mentality in competition climbers as, as much. Sometimes we see boulders that say, okay, I'm good with my, with my performance. I can go to the next step which is a sign that people take into consideration opportunity costs. I remember Yanya at the, at the Olympics with, with the last boulder. She flashed the first two, and the third one, she didn't top it. And uh, she did two tries, I believe, or more than one for sure. So she showed that she wanted to, to send the last boulder as well. But then she had to do lead climbing afterwards. So she did try more than once, despite she was already first, and she knew she was already first, the first two boulders, even without coming out of the, uh, on the on the mat. But she, I can understand the pride in wanting to top all the boulders at the Olympics, absolutely fine. But after a while, she's okay, I'm stopping here, and I'm going to do lead so that I can go take my gold there too. Yeah, I actually don't remember that, but... Um... I mean, she, I feel like she usually just wants to climb as much as she can. Yeah, but when you have a, a different session afterwards, a whole, like, you know, the whole process of going through qualifications and finals and finals in very small period of time, it's really a lot about strategic thinking. And Yanya has the edge by the fact that she can flash everything, basically. So the amount of effort that she has to put compared to other participants is much less. She's yeah, much exactly. more fresh. She has more skin and so on. But at the same time, it's still a whole other process of going through the the lead Olympics. So it, it made sense that she stopped after a while. Please excuse this brief intermission, but I would just like to take some time and remind you that if you are enjoying this podcast, please follow and rate it on your preferred listening platform. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe and hit the like button. Anything helps to push this podcast out to more people and get even more amazing guests on. Back to the show. I guess talking about 
where athletes are at psychologically, what are some of the differences you see between um, like youth climbers and like adult climbers, either in the competition scene or just in general? Okay. So definitely with youth climbers, we have uh, many more difficulties with managing emotions because this is the age where, you know, the prefrontal cortex is developing. So it's how you uh, manage not only your emotions, but how you program your own rewards throughout time. So, for example, kids and adolescents require rewards more often compared to adults. Those can sustain frustration for a longer period of time. They can sustain attention for a longer period of time and so on. And then, so when it comes to working with the adolescents, it's a lot about managing the emotion. So I do a lot of emotion regulation kind of mental training. Uh, while with the adults, it's usually much more about beliefs about themselves, which are more strong and eradicated in the idea of who they, the people are, the person is. So for example, I'm a cohort. It's something I hear a lot. Uh, when I do fear of falling training with people, and uh, it's a judgment. It's a judgment that the per and uh, a statement that is generalized to the whole the whole being. It's not just like I'm a coward when it comes to this specific situation. I'm a coward. Period. That's who I am. This is how I work. And if we want to overcome this, we have to work on how you see yourself. Basically. So we have to start by making a bit of um, uh, an analysis of the different types of fear the person has, because when it comes to especially, I'm talking now about fear of falling, but it can be applied to anything. A lot of people are afraid of, for example, climbing in front of people, and uh, especially when it comes to significant others. But let's talk about fear of falling, for example. It's, it's much easier. Uh, a lot of people say that... Mm, they are afraid of falling, but fear of falling can really have so many different faces and people don't realize. So when they say, I'm afraid of falling, say, okay, but what are you afraid of? And then they start thinking about it and uh, they say, okay, but then are you afraid of be laying on top rope, for example? And uh, they say, no. And then the, the other person that is in the course uh, with me is like, I am actually afraid of bullying. I'm afraid of killing my friend. And uh, I mean, when it comes to top roping, we know that as long as there is safety check and uh, everything is, you know, managed as, as it's supposed to be with the body check and everything, then the chances of this happening are very, very low. When it comes to lead climbing, bullying is not as straightforward. So there are a lot of people that are actually anxious and afraid of lead belaying. So this is another type of uh, fear of falling that I work with a lot. And um, then there are some people that are afraid not really of falling, but of losing control. So they can do program falling, but not when they're not really aware of what are the consequences or what could happen if you fall in a weird position and how to manage situations which are actually dangerous and we know they are. For example, when you have the foot that is behind the rope and can get entangled and you can fall up backside and backward. So there are so many different types of fear and even just making them realize that there are so many different types and they don't have all of them is already something that is doing something for them. Of course, I'm not like I'm putting it into that 
um, perspective, but the perspective is that you're helping each other. So I do these courses with uh, like six, eight people at the time, and everyone has different kind of fears. And uh, when they have to work helping not only like themselves, because they have to help themselves so, so that they can uh, improve with uh, their sensations and their fears, they also have to help the other person. And the other person has different fears from what you have. And it actually, when you see that you can help someone else as well, it really gives you a different perspective about how fear falling feels. And uh, when you see that there are some people that are terrified just by sitting on the harness when they're on top rope, and there are plenty of these people, we don't see them as much because they just don't climb. Right, they just boulder. <laughs> yeah. So this is one of the missions that I have, right? So I'm trying to bring more people rope climbing because uh, there is a, a lot of people that just don't start because they can't overcome the fear or it's like too much of an effort for them to actually enjoy the, the climbing. And, um, and then the person that says, yes, I'm a super big cohort is there doing the, the, the proper falls with the, you know, with some slack and going onto the overhang that is scaring them as much and uh, so much. So it really puts things into different perspective. And you can see the progression, not only yours, but of other people. So it's uh, impacting this idea that this is who I am and it's unchangeable and gives them confidence by the fact that they can change the way they feel and they can change the, the way they perceive the different threats and that they can enjoy the, the climbing more. Because this is one of the biggest issues with fear of falling, not really that, of course, some people would say to me, it's very, very frustrating that I'm not able to climb at my max grade. For example, when you compare lead climbing to top roping. But a lot, a lot of people just say like, I. I don't do it because I don't like it because I'm so scared and I feel so overwhelmed or I feel so incompetent when I do it that I just don't enjoy what I'm doing, even if I'm doing something that is very easy for my level of expertise. And, um, so really is different when it comes to adults compared to adolescents. Adolescents are also much more reckless. No so, fear of falling. Mm, I had some youth, not an elite climber that have fear of falling, but it really goes with the, with the background that they have. So for example, if they come from uh, an environment that is overprotective, then uh, uh, no, no room to experimentation and to some degrees of uh, uh, risk is allowed. And then they learn to be very afraid, especially if the parents are very afraid themselves. So basically they learn this as a coping mechanism to protect themselves. And then, uh, yeah. I mean, I would also think that um, like getting injured would really yes. affect the fear of falling as well. Exactly. Uh, I actually have a lot of adults that are afraid of fear of falling because of injuries. I fortunately either have uh, youth climbers that are afraid. I had uh, one athlete that got a bit more scared when uh, uh, she was climbing on lead. And then there was like a very big pyramid that was sticking out. And so she she hit it with the fall, but nothing bad happened, but she got a bit self-conscious about the consequences of the fall. So for a while she didn't commit as much, but then it, 
she overcame it quickly. Usually injuries uh, are a big issue when it comes to your falling with adults. And also because they have to consider whether to, like it's worth going back into it, especially if the, the injuries is very severe or happens multiple times, because unfortunately I've seen it happening multiple times for the same person. Oh gosh. Which, which can be a lot to, to think about really. And because uh, there are some situations and some, some places which are more dangerous than others. I, I have to say that when I compare the, the things that I see happening in, um, in Sweden compared to my Italian clients, because I have most of my clients are from Italy or from Sweden, because I live in Sweden, but I can also do coaching online with Italians because I'm Italian. And then I can do it in English with all the other countries. That's why I also have contact with Spain and so on. But when it comes to fear of falling, most of my clients are from Italy and from um, Sweden. And in Sweden, especially when it comes to indoor climbing, we have very rigid standards. So you cannot climb unless you have the green card, which is something that you get after following two days course and doing an exam that is both theoretical and practical. And then you have to always show the green card or the red card. Green card is for top roping and red card is for lead climbing. You should always be on your harness. And if you have seen, if you are seen doing it systematically, things are not conformed to what you're taught, then they can actually revoke it. You say, I, I'm not letting you from doing this climbing here. And you're giving a bad example for someone else as well. So for, for us, at least what, what I've seen here in Sweden, uh, we have this very high standards. And um, if you ask Swedes, they won't, wouldn't say that they are high, but compared to other countries, and I can talk about Italy, I can talk about Spain, but the, the standards there is, is lower. So you don't have any systematic way of doing the, the courses. I don't really know how it is in the rest of the world, but it's... Um, and like, yeah, I can check how you belay and then I give you something that tells you you can do the belaying and there is much less attention to details or like how to do dynamic belaying, how to prevent certain types of injuries, how to prevent not falling upside down and all of these kind of things. Or like as simple as holding on the brake strand of the rope when you're with a grigri. So it, it really is a problem to, to climb in certain environments in which rules are not enforced or not, let's say, embraced as much. And, uh, and this can, can raise a lot of issues with, uh, with trust with people. So is there more fear in like Sweden where it's very strict or in other countries? I would say Sweden is as much as other countries, but the fact is that when you have less safety in some places like in uh, we always talk about the Mediterranean countries where we're very used to like belaying while smoking or looking at the phone. <sighs> okay. Yeah. I've never but, seen that, but wow. And uh, it's very famous, like in, it's, it's called Mediterranean belaying, unfortunately. And um, it happens very often. And when this is linked with injuries, like this would obviously lead towards more injuries. So injuries can happen everywhere, but we still have to try to mitigate the risk as much as possible. And so when you see as many injuries happening 
and the the people get injured then they get of course more scared and uh, then there is all the the trust with the the billing relationship that it's not really they say investigated as much and uh, you need to teach the person to look for someone who's reliable and uh so it, it's not as easy really when it comes to an environment that is not as protected as for example in spain and everyone can of course can do whatever they want outdoors but it's still a, a, something that we need to think about because it's it's a dangerous sport and we know this and we need to i see injuries in my gym as well of course i'm responsible for seeing injuries basically everywhere but most of them are in the boulder area not while doing rope climbing and uh, uh, we were trying to do as much as we can to prevent those and we can still do more but it's um it's definitely a different situation also because in uh, in lead climbing you have more severe injuries i mean i have one athlete uh, one uh, no, not one athlete one client that after an injury couldn't walk for a while because he and that was his second injury so that were very severe accidents and bones that are broken and uh, people risking their lives basically yeah how do you come back from something like that first of all you need to actually ask yourself if you want to come back and uh, for the person in question climbing is so important for his life that probably climbing um I'm still not, not aware if he decided to to go back, but we talked about it and he was positive to the idea of going back into climbing because climbing is something that literally saved his life. Um, so I believe that the motivation there is uh, enough. Uh, but if he, there are some times in which the, you know, the, the risk is not worth the candles. It's what we say in Italian. I don't know if this expression exists in English or not. We actually said the game, the game is not worth the candle, but it, because at the time you were supposed to play uh, without lights, so with a candle, and the candles were expensive. Oh, doesn't matter. But really, when it comes to overcoming your fears, so there is always um, motivation that needs to be assessed before. So I know some people that say like, "Yeah, I'm afraid of falling only." Like, okay. Uh, do you want to overcome it? Like, yes and no. Okay, why yes, why no? Yes, because otherwise I feel like a failure as a climber. But no, because I'm, I mean, I am a, I am a trad climber. And uh, I feel uh, like I can, I can enjoy my trad climbing, even if I do easy climbing. And what is really important for me in climbing is the community, being outdoors, being in the nature, being with friends and having fun. So... Uh, in that case, I, I don't feel the need of improving my fear of falling. And so there you see that in those cases, like, is it really worth it going through the fear of falling training, going through the, you know, all the um, adrenaline, all the stress of doing, because it, it's just stressful for a lot of people to do this kind of training. And to do what? To give credit to the voice in your head that says that if you don't climb super hard, you're not a good climber. You know what I mean? So in, in some cases, I actually advise not to do it. I advise, don't do it. If you enjoy what you're doing, if you don't feel like there's a real need of 
uh, like overcoming this fear. This is not actually limiting your enjoyment or limiting what you want to do. And, uh, is, and actually, in some cases, it's also like a measure of saying I am good enough or not. And just don't do it. We don't have to, like, this is my own perspective, but we don't always have to show ourselves or to others that we are worth of something, no matter what. It's, uh, it's a bit of a narrative that we, we hear around, like, always try to improve yourself, but can you really try to improve yourself in everything? We don't do it. I can tell you from the, the research that I do that we don't try to improve in everything because there is always something that feels so impossible for us that we don't even try. We don't even realize that these things are possible. We don't realize, if we say, okay, study astrophysics. Most people wouldn't even consider it. Like, oh, but you should improve yourself. But why should I study astrophysics? I had interesting physics in my life. But this is just the, the general example, you know? Like, do we really have to improve ourselves or it makes sense for us to improve in things that are important for us because it gives us satisfaction, it gives us connection with other people, it makes us feel like we are improving and this is important for us and so on. And especially it sometimes can be, as I said, detrimental. So if it's giving power to those voices that say you need to do this climb on lead or it's not valuable or it doesn't count as I've heard so much. Right, yeah, I hear that a lot. You know, and then like count for what? Am I am I gonna get into the debate whether I I sent this six C in the climbing community or not? Like you could do with nine C with or without knee pads. So this is like we can ask ourselves, does it make it easier? Does it make it harder? And uh, does it count as is like the difficulty of the route? Because we we're talking a bit about very high end, uh, the very high end part of our sport. So then it's important, it has a meaning. But when it comes to climbing, when it comes to doing something that it, we do for our enjoyment, it's not our job, okay? Then it doesn't make as much sense. Professional climbers get their sponsorship by the, the degree of difficulty of the routes they climb or the boulders that they climb. Do we? As normal average climber. I'm not the average climber. I wish. Climber, but I wish. I mean, it is a, you can get recognition for sure. But it's a different kind of process for sure. So if it's important for you, do it. If it's not that important for you, then consider Maybe you can find something else that is important in your life that is worth putting your effort, you know, into. For all the people out there who maybe think that mindset or mental coaching is not as important for them, um, what would you say to convince them that it is important and that it can make a difference in their climbing? I wouldn't want to convince them, actually. So... um, for example, it's like going to the physiotherapist when you don't have an injury. Okay, the knowledge, the basic knowledge, so to prevent injuries can be very important. And uh, for example, physiotherapists can help in this. But sometimes uh, when I would say go to 
do mental coaching when you feel that you want to do it, not because you feel the need to do it. So if you feel like there is a need, there is a need because you have a fear of falling. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't advise mental coaching to everyone just by, um, just like, just do it. No, because mental coaching has a cost. Just like people wouldn't go to um, a personal trainer. So how would you advise everyone to go to a per- do personal training for climbing? I wouldn't. Like, do it if you want to do it. It has a cost. You can do something else with those resources if you want to. If it's something that is important for you, just absolutely. If it's something that it's, it's worth for you doing, absolutely. And there might be much more that what you actually expect or imagine into mental training, mental coaching. Absolutely. But I, I don't believe, like if, if it was available for everyone for free, like I'm doing on YouTube, I'm trying to share information for free as much as possible, then go check it out. Why not? You know, it's something that I'm trying to, to bring there that is different from what other people are doing. And okay, time is not infinite, but might be, I, I hope it's some well-used time. But it, when it comes to like doing some precise one-to-one coaching or mental coaching courses and uh, workshops, it, it makes sense if it makes sense to you. So if you are interested in improving your, for example, root reading and visualization, then do it. It's something that maybe you didn't think about doing systematically, but it can be done. If you feel like you'd be... Um, Interested in doing fear falling courses? Absolutely. Follow the courses. If you think that you want to improve your, um, for example, your self-talk, your emotional regulation, or how you you manage anxiety, and that has, is meaningful for you. So, for example, you have that much anxiety that you can't do what you want, either perform or enjoy the, the activity. Absolutely. We're here for this. If if it makes sense to you. If you are a professional athlete and for you it's important to have the top edge even in your mindset and uh, in all the, you know, those mental aspects in, uh, in climbing for you to actually be able to perform at your best, then absolutely do it. If your federation has the money for it or if someone has the money for it, of course. Always the same problem of, of resources, I have to say. And... Um, when it comes to climbing, I don't see as much the, the prejudice towards working on your mind as much as you would see it in psychotherapy because there's no stigma of a diagnosis, let's say. This is a big issue in psychotherapy. I am no psychotherapist, but this, I have studied psychotherapy, so I know this issue. Maybe there is a bit... Um, I have to say that most of my clients are female. So it could be that uh, it's easier for females to reach out for help. And we know this is usually the case in general. Uh, but I, I don't see as much stereotype and prejudice towards mental training in climbing as in other settings. And climbing is in general like such a supportive community that people are aware of each other's feelings, uh, each other's issues or difficulties with judgment and they try to be sensitive about it and um, so I believe it's easier to reach out for 
mental coaching when it comes to planning compared to mental coaching in other services, in other sectors. So maybe I'm not very convincing and maybe I'm not really selling my job as well uh, as you would want me to do, but I, I really believe that uh, it shouldn't be something that everyone should do it just, just because. I think people should be active in what they choose to do and do what they really want. And it's usually what also yields more results and satisfaction. I know we're already almost getting to the end of time here, but I do want to just um, switch gears real quick so we can talk a little bit about your own competition experience. Yes, um, why not? So, yeah, not at a world level or anything like that, but so, um, you've competed in the Swedish League Championships. Um, uh-huh. How do you manage yourself mentally during a, a competition like that? Definitely. So the reasons why I went to the lead Swedish championships was uh, pretty different from usual, I would say. my I had basically two main goals. The first one was to enjoy the root setting because as I said, I do a lot of root setting. I enjoy root setting and World Cup root setting or like competition style root setting is something that I'm really into. And, uh, you know, when you see the root set, that is just one wall all for you, different colors. It's a different kind of setting. Just a lot of fun, and that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to go. But also, I went to the championships just two years after starting climbing. My idea is that, okay, I I got the red card. I can lead climb indoors, um, but I am afraid of falling. So I, I got the red card late because of COVID. The courses were, were but anyways, I said, okay, I want to, to overcome my fear of falling when on sighting. So my aim is I want to be able to go somewhere and be able to on site and do like my very best when on lead as I am with, well, when I'm on top rope. So I decided to put a very ambitious time schedule. And uh, to participate to the championships in just eight months after having taken the red card course. So I had eight months. I signed up like second person. So I have number two. Uh, right after opening of the, of the uh, enrollment. And I said, okay, I have these eight months to go to this level and get as close as possible to this goal of trying to be confident uh, while leading on site. And um, this was my, my main goal. And of course, enjoying the, the whole process, I would setting, meeting the people. I met so many amazing people in, uh, in that uh, situation. So it was overall a lot of fun, very interesting. Fear was still a factor at the time. So I couldn't give my, my whole best for the for the setting, but I, I definitely was very satisfied. I ended up also getting seventh. So it, it was a very unexpected result to go to finals and so on. This also really uh, sparked the, the discussion about competitiveness in women because there were so many more men, still not that many, but so many more men compared to women. We were just in eight. So we already knew that we were all going to go to finals. And then right from the start, 
And uh, it really made me think about the, the reasons why women don't compete in general. We know that men have uh, much higher levels of competitiveness. And uh, this is definitely driven by a lot of social pressure. So uh, men have a lot of this value of demonstrating social status by comparing with each other, while females have uh, the, let's say, social learning of community, being close to each other, helping each other, and uh, trying to be better than others as a way of being envied, much more than admired. So uh, we know that women tend to not want to compete as much as uh, as men. I mean, there are many reasons why this is the case. And there are studies, and I'm still studying about it because it's not my area of expertise. But there are definitely a lot of factors. Some parts are, some are definitely also, then we can talk about how big the impact is. But there is, are genetic differences. So, for example, hormones. Then there is interaction with the temperament, which is the, the set of traits that you have when you're basically born. And then you have personality traits, that is the development of the interaction between genetic factors, environment, and temperament. And then you have social learning, learning that becomes uh, more and more self-driven the older you become, because you select your own environment. So it's a very complex process. It's a very, very difficult to see which is the biggest share. Definitely, um, the social environment is is pushing men to be more competitive compared to women. Uh, but it's a bit of a shame to see that uh, females don't want to put themselves into the situation of being seen and get self-conscious. And then we know that women are uh, have, uh, in general, higher levels of anxiety, and especially social anxiety. It's another fact we know. So almost like double the frequency. And... Uh, so it's uh, it's something that we have to teach our uh, both guys and girls that it's okay to compete, that it's okay that sometimes people will look at you in a fun way, and that it's uh, sometimes you might make a fool of yourself, and uh, that is fine as well. And, um, for example, I have a lot of guys that I try to bring to the to the competition, and girls as well. Girls I couldn't find to convince anyone. I could convince some guys. But some guys are saying, like, I, I'm not going because it, it doesn't make sense to me. Why? Because I don't want to be last. And this is the main issue, right? You don't want to be last. And I, I want to ask anyone, like, can you tell me one name of one person that arrived last of the competition that you've seen? You know? I guess that's, but no. yeah, that's kind <laughs> of the point, I guess. Uh, that is also kind of a point, but people are is, are not competing to be, well, of course, if you want to go there and win, if, if this is your goal, you want to be remembered as the one that, that wins. But people uh, are afraid of when it comes to going arriving last, and like to, to be perceived as a fool or someone who's a loser and so on. But like there is always a last one. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I guess no one will remember that you got last, so it's fine. Fine, and uh, uh, but but sometimes you know we, we try to value, evaluate ourselves, and give ourselves value depending on how we perform. And this is only one part of the process. It we know there is an impact of that. If you 
do better in outcomes, you will feel more confident for the next time. If you do worse, you will feel less confident. Yeah, but the, the formula is sometimes that the fear of failure really can uh, can impact your even your idea of of trying, and uh, that really impacts your your development, impacts your confidence because you're not able to sustain the frustration of failure. And we go back to the the topic that we were talking about before, right? Do you like? Do you think that's also the case in other sports where there's also just like less women interested in all competitions, or is it specifically climbing? Because I mean, there is a bit more of a gender gap um, in terms of male climbers and like female climbers. So I don't have the data for all sports. There are definitely differences in different kinds of sports. I know, for example, that one of the most balanced uh, sports for gender is CrossFit, where the share of uh, females and males is 50-50. Surprising, actually. Very surprising and and, uh, very interesting. But there are, I would say, two factors. One is that for male sports, they're usually much more endorsed than for females, since where we're growing up always because uh you know the development of the the physique of the the physical abilities uh, it's much more rewarded in men compared to women and then when um, when uh, women train socially speaking a lot of time it happens for weight management rather than for like the development of strength so women tend to much, go much more into fitness rather than sport unless they've been growing up in a situation like in a culture or in a, in a family that is pushing towards sports and stuff instead so typically uh kids start by doing sports because the sports allow them to develop a lot of different abilities coordination and uh, balance different self body awareness and a lot of stuff when of course it's super healthy but then when they um, when they go into like competitive setting, competitiveness it's uh, uh, also much more rewarded in in men, as I said. So it's um, as I said, it's easier for men to feel some satisfaction from competing, while females tend to feel more self conscious. And then when it comes to, as I said, growing up and choosing the the activity that you want to do, females go to fit into fitness not only because of like weight management, body image, and so on, but also because men do this as well, of course. But it's also because there is no element of competition that is the directed like attention on who is better than the other. And uh, a lot of people find a lot of relief into this kind of setting. And um, in a certain sense, it's great that people find their own environment. I'm not saying that no one should, like everyone should be competitive, or no one should be competitive. Everyone should be allowed to do what they want. But the thing is that when it comes to gender, I would say that uh, there are some pressures that are hindering the, the ability to choose. And this is a bit of a shame. When it comes to climbing, climbing, uh, I don't have the data. I really don't have the data about how many people... I, I mean, I know how many females we have in our club, and it's much, much less than what we have for men. I know that in some cases it's a third or less than uh, members. 
And uh, it is also true that it's a sport in which uh, the um, the progression for female at start is harder than for uh, males. So uh, male progression uh, more faster at the start than females. So it can get be less rewarding. But there are other sports that are like rewarding more female abilities, such as balance or other types of abilities that might reward more uh, females compared to males. For climbing, I don't really know. There's definitely a difference between bouldering and lead climbing. So it's easier to find um, a share that is higher for lead climbing compared to bouldering because it's less power demanding. Uh, at the same time, bouldering is more accessible than rope climbing because you don't need a partner, you don't need a harness, you don't need a belayer and so on. So um, I would say that the share for females is improving also because weight teaching technique, you teach them how to overcome the difficulties with uh, having less pulling ability compared to men. We have, uh, there is also variation, of course, and we always have to talk about it. But um, we know that the female body after puberty has the development for um, a very strong lower body compared to like body weight. And then the, um, yeah, lower parts, lower limbs. So actually the, the, we know that, for example, females are very strong in, can you share the cat? Yeah. <laughs> cat is like a great tension. Well, like pulling ability is definitely of higher um, level for, for males without training. Like if we compare males and females, pulling ability, the dimension of the, the muscles in the back are bigger. So it, it is easier for them to do pull-ups. And if you can do pull-ups, it's definitely easier to campus push there. And you can, <laughs> you can um, let's say, work without as much technique. You can figure it out and get away with it, getting your send and getting your reward. When females need to go through more frustration at the start compared to, to men at the very start. And then there is a reach. Let's not forget about it. Yeah, and when you're in the competitions and there's so many less women to compete against, um, I think that happens to me as well. And it kind of feels like, oh, well, I like maybe I placed high, but it was there were only like three other people to compete against. So it doesn't feel very legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's an issue as well. Yeah, I mean, this is really depending on the type of standards they have for success and failure, what makes you satisfied or not, and uh, uh, what is the drive for you to, to compete, and uh, if it's to... I really like competing, for example. Um, I used to never compete because it was too much pressure for me. Then I started climbing, and I changed as a person, and now I really enjoy competing because it really gives me the possibility to uh, focus on getting max effort in that setting. So for example, I've learned to not go as hard before the competition, yeah, prepare and having like my trainings for that situation. And I like that I have no excuses for not trying my best. That is the moment. And this is a feeling that I like a lot. And if I am able to try my best, try very hard, I, I get a lot of satisfaction, independently from the 
from the result. Then it happened to me too that I won the the climbing club competition because the strongest climber wasn't there. She was outdoor climbing. Oh, great! It was yeah, Sunday day, so very few people competed, and yeah. she is so much, so much stronger than me. Super short as well, so it's it's really ability that makes her incredible. And um, I won. I still uh, beat another competitor that is very, very strong. Usually, he always beats me. It was a route that suited me a lot. So there are a lot of contingencies. I um, take this victory. I'm I'm happy that I won for the first time the the club, um, the club competition. But at the same time, does it change really what I think about myself? What I'm thinking about myself as like a climber? No, I I wouldn't say that I'm a stronger that than the, the other girls, neither of them, neither the one that, that I beat in that specific situation. Competitions are like this. And I think that actually when it comes to sport, there is almost nothing that is as unfair. There are so many factors that go in between that really being able to control the results and seeing this is the result of your effort or your weaknesses is incredibly hard. You need to have a lot of competitions to try to rule out the the effect of chance, the effect of you know people getting injured. Uh, like maybe you have this luck, you know, or someone else slipping, or there is always something that goes on. And then there is a lot of disparity when it comes to facility. People can uh, can go climb. I I can never climb competition style things because we can't set them we don't have the space we don't have the ability we really don't have the space the, our bouldering area is incredibly small we have a lot of roots but we have very little bouldering so the only thing that i can do is to go to other places in stockholm and uh, try to do comp style things but of course i can't be very good at those if i can train them and um this is how it is we have to accept that we try to make it as even as possible, but for a sport and especially climbing is very, very far from being uh, fair. Very, very far. As I said, Jayla kind of says she was two years old. She has a home wall and, uh, and her bouldering space is bigger than the bouldering space that we have in our gym. <laughs> it's, it's like this. And uh, I mean, Jayla has her own personal mental coach. And um, we're trying to, to bring it, to, to make it fair as much as possible. Then what are the conclusions that you, like everyone is trying to do their best, even in the competition setting. Uh, Jayla is not just amazing because she, she has those uh, privileges, let's say. But at the same time, we have to consider some people don't have some privileges and some people have them. And we have to try to uh, understand that these things happen. And uh, sometimes there are other things that get in the way. And they said, maybe you injure yourself. And sometimes this happens, it's just like lack of luck. You have a genetic predisposition to injuries as well. So what if you have it? I have neck injuries all the time since before climbing. So I, I have chronic pain for my neck and I always need to be very cautious about it all the time. And uh, at the moment it's hurting a lot. And uh, it's something that is there all the time. 
in the back of my head. So I know that I, in a certain sense for me, trying to look into going forward with my competitive climbing means trying to go around this. It's something that I have to think. Um, Beatrice Corley, uh, speed climber, Italian, no, World Cup level. She has a deformation in her heel and she has special shoes for, for her to be made because she has this disease. And the heel hooking for her is very painful. So she has to go around that. She's a speed climber, but of course she does all the types of climbing as well. And um, so she has to go around this. And sometimes you have to think about like these things happen. Uh, sometimes we try to go around them, but there is not much thing that we can do about them. Yeah, we're coming to the end of time. Um, I think those were all the questions I had, but do you have any final thoughts? Please. It was a pleasure being here. Yeah. Do you want to let people know where they can find you? Absolutely. So they can find me and my email that is allegra at climbingflow.com. Of course, you can also find me on Instagram, Allegra Maguire. Um, you can follow through the YouTube channel. There's Allegra Maguire, climbing psychologist. And um, yeah, basically I am active on all of these social media I, I answer and if you want to know more about um, my mental coaching service is www.climbinflow.com and then there are also my contacts yeah I'll leave all of the links below in the description um, yeah thank you so much it was amazing to talk to you thank you it was a pleasure Thank you so much for making it to the end of the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, I would love to hear your discussion and thoughts in the comments below. And don't forget to like and subscribe if you enjoyed. If you're listening through a podcasting platform, I'd appreciate if you rate it five stars and you can continue the discussion through my competition climbing discord um, linked in all of the descriptions through all the platforms. Thanks again for listening.